Welcome, listeners, to our brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. And today, first time ever, we've got a mystery writer with us. And I'm not going to tell you who it is because it's a mystery. Just kidding. Michelle Cox is with us today. Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Very glad to have you. And we'll just dive in. Origin story. How on earth did you become a writer? Was this a lifelong dream? Did you wake up one day? I'm going to be a writer. Or like there was a book that appeared. And how did this all happen? Good question. I dabbled with stories as a kid, but I didn't really want to pursue that because I thought it just sounded too hard and scary. So for a while in college, I was a pre-med and I thought I was going to be a doctor. And that was all great and fun and I enjoyed it. But I was seeing some lit classes and I just, I just said to myself, you know, you can't keep running from this because this is really what your passion is and so I quickly did a lit degree notice it wasn't creative writing because I was still too afraid of that so I got a lit degree and then I went out into the world and didn't use it at all of course got married had kids and then it wasn't until I don't know 2012 I had this huge glut of time open up one of my kids was diagnosed with ADHD and I just kind of freaked out and so I quit everything because I thought he was going to need his help and it's not like a thing that goes away overnight I realized oh you know I shouldn't probably have quit everything because I didn't really need to anyway it was good that I did because then I really had to think about what was the next step and I'm like you know what? maybe you should try to write the novel that you always wanted to write but you were too afraid to write so I did I mean I just sat down and it took about a year to write the book and that is not the Henry and Inspector Howard series it wasn't a part of that at all it was just my first book and I tried to sell it and that went nowhere. So I eventually tossed that out and just started over with A Girl Like You, which was the start of the series. So that's like the short for... Okay, okay. We have follow-up questions. When you say to write the book you've always wanted to, are you saying in the sense that you've always had this idea kind of simmering in the back of your mind and you figured to write it or just you always want to write a book, write a book? Always wanted to write a book, write a book. Because it's like I would meet strange characters and I'm like, wow, that would be that would make such a great character in a book. Or I would have maybe storylines or I would just observe things. And I'm like, you know, I wish that I was talented enough to write a book. Mm-hmm. And so I finally got to that point where it was I was done running from it, done being afraid. And I'm I'm like, who cares? Just sit down and do it. It doesn't matter if anybody else ever reads it. You're just proving to yourself that you can do it. Right. And then was that first book a mystery also? Or it was just a random... It wasn't. It was like a historical fiction sort of coming of age. And it was set in the 40s in Chicago. And I just didn't know enough about writing a novel. It's a great story. My friends and family read it. But it in no way adhered to what a contemporary novel is. Because I really didn't know. And so I thought I had done enough research, but it turns out I didn't. So Well, so how how did you make up for that? Because when you Um, did, I mean, you got a book out, so you do know how to write. Part of it was just starting to let's like watch different webinars or just read more about what the industry was looking for because I had spent the first 40 years of my life for real from like age 10 to like 45 reading only classic literature and so I didn't really understand what a contemporary novel was made up of like a certain word length have certain beats it's a three-act structure that kind of stuff I wasn't aware of and so I really had to kind of come up to speed on what a contemporary novel looks like and what agents are looking for and what what publishing houses are looking for. They're not really looking for great expectations. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that this first novel was still kind of a historical fiction in the 1940s because your novels that are out now, the main series that you got, is also historical fiction. 1935, I think I 
Tuscaloosa or the Great Depression? Yeah, like the 1930s. And the reason I did that shift is because I based the main character of the series, so it's Henrietta is the main protagonist. I based her on a real woman that I met when I was working in a nursing home. So (laughs) I have all these stories from these people in the nursing home that had these amazing lives in Chicago in like the 30s and 40s. And just side note, that's my weekly blog is a different true story every week. So I took her and I really loved her story and I wanted to use a lot of her details. And one of the things that was sort of unique to her is that even though it was the depression in Chicago, Chicago, she was able to have all of these bizarre jobs um, because she was so beautiful in real life. So one of her jobs was that she worked at the Chicago World's Fair in 1933 and I just loved that detail yeah. so much at the time I, I thought that A Girl Like You was just a one-off book I didn't realize it was going to be a series so I'm like you know what I know more about Chicago in the 40s but I can write one book set in the 30s and then of course it turned into a series but yes. <laughs> by then I had learned enough so how did it turn into a series did you know it was going to be a series before the first book already was published or at what point was it you know what this is going to be a series midway through writing the book I kind of started to finally fall in love with these characters because I was still at this point super committed to that first book that never went anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't really invested in this book when I started writing. And I'm like, oh, I'm just going to write this one-off mystery and I'm going to try to get an agent with it. And then, But then as I started writing, I'm like, you know, I really love these characters and I don't want this book to end. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, I know, I'll write a series. By the time I finished book one, I knew that I wanted wanted to expand it but there was a little bit of a problem because I would have set it up differently if I had known that and I didn't want to rewrite the book nowadays I would have rewritten the book back then I'm like oh you can fix it by just sort of taking it in a slightly different direction in book two but I think I succeeded in shifting it a little bit I didn't want to just write about a cop and his wife in the 30s in Chicago I felt like that had kind of been done so somebody had to have a secret past and of course Clyde the inspector stepped up and volunteered for me. So he's secretly very wealthy. He's from a very wealthy North Shore family. And so that allowed me to have a kind of build the world out a little bit and have a lot more drama and a lot more side characters and all that kind of stuff. So you kind of preempted my question, but I'll just ask it anyway. In case there's something you want to add to it, once you knew it was a series, what kind of changes did you realize have to happen? As in, is that what it is? Like, oh, I got to make sure I flesh out this world a little bit more so that there's more to write about? Or was there something else also you, you had to consider? Or if, or if you could go back, what are some things you would think about? You turn this into a series, X, Y, and Z probably shouldn't happen because you got to leave a series open. The reason I kind of had Clive be from a very wealthy background and kind of wanted to build that world out because it was really more a selfish reason because I felt, you know, they say write what you want to read. I have a tagline for the series, which is like Downton Abbey meets Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. So it's kind of like that upstairs, downstairs tension. I love that. I love to read that. I love to watch it. So I really wanted the series to kind of be about that, the sort of richer versus poor and having multiple storylines. So it's not just the gritty city storyline. I also heard of like fairy tale world where there's a lot of other things not necessarily so nice going on. So I felt like it just kind of gave me a little bit of room to breathe. And if I knew that I was going to set it up as a series to, to begin with, not only would I have I not have started it out to be about this 
poor city girl who meets this inspector. I wouldn't have had them get engaged by the end of one. Yeah. I didn't realize that you're supposed to sort of draw that sort of romance across a series, and I didn't do that. So I have to bring in other romantic elements throughout the books to kind of keep that moving along, like it's her sister or it's, you know, whatever, the neighborhood boy, blah, blah. You keep preempting the question. I was going to ask about what do you do then if you have such a strong romantic element and you kind of resolve so much of it in the first book? You sort of answer that you start bringing in other characters to try to complicate it, I guess. Right. And even though Clive and Henrietta do get engaged by the end of the first book, then in the second book, he has to reveal to her, hey, I'm actually the heir to this big estate in the North Shore. And that kind of complicates sets up a lot of tension in their relationship because she's not exactly sure that's really what she wants. She thought she was getting engaged to the city cop and that's what she wanted. And now it's going to involve all this other stuff. So their romantic tension I was able to sort of stretch out for a couple of books in that way, like should we, shouldn't we? And her sister kind of comes in and she has lots of romantic ups and downs through the series. And then I bring in Clive's sister sort of starts having a little bit of a mini romance as well. Right. Why did you switch over to mystery? Especially if your first book was not specifically a mystery. Did you kind of accidentally write the mystery or you're like, it's got to be a mystery? Uh, that's a great question. Nobody's ever really asked me that before in that way. So bonus. Yay. <laughs> it's because I still, at the time, still did not completely understand the industry. And I naively thought that the best way to get an agent was to write genre fiction. And that isn't necessarily the case. But at the time, that's what I thought. And so I'm like, well, I've got to write a mystery. And so I did. I was a big mystery fan as a kid. I'm not so much as an adult, which that has also, I think, been a challenge for me is that I don't have a lot of contemporary mysteries under my belt. But I think I've pulled it off. To pull it off, was it just, okay, I just got to let's think out a puzzle? Or did you take some sort of specific webinar somewhere to to do the mystery? Or the story just felt... I don't know. For me, it sounds like mysteries. How do people write this? To be truly honest, I just took a couple of some of those classic mystery films and I kind of based it on that. I haven't read a ton of adult mysteries, but I've watched mystery films, not thriller, not something like that, but just like Nick and Nora or American Dreamer or something like that, or even Romance in the Stone, which is really not a mystery, but it's kind of a little bit more adventure. I took a lot of those elements and sort of just put them into the book. And that was good for book one, because like I said, I only thought I was writing one, but I had to really learn a little bit more about what a mystery reader is expecting. And I didn't realize that that there's this sort of relationship between the author and the reader. This is very much true in the romance world, even more so, I think, than mystery, where the reader is expecting X, Y, and Z, and you better produce that or they're going to be upset. Yeah, that's why they're reading the romance or the or the mystery for whatever that is. Right, yes. And especially in romance, there's different tropes. And there are some of those tropes in mystery too, but there's definitely tropes. So the reader kind of knows what they're going to get, what the story is going to be about, but it's the author's particular spin on it that makes it interesting to them. Yes, exactly. Adding in such a strong romance plot, was that ever in conflict within Mystery Park? Because you don't want to either take away from the mystery or just make the mystery seem like less important because the romance plot is also a strong part of the plot. 
Yeah, because I can't ever really go too dark because it's a Clement Henrietta book. So there's a certain amount of, I don't know, lightness to it. But sometimes, and again, that's another way that the subplots or the sub characters can help me because nothing too terrible is ever really going to happen to Clive and Henrietta, but some awful things can happen to the other characters. Yeah. <laughs> so there's one where a child get mistakenly admitted to one of Chicago's very terrible insane asylums at the oh. time because she has an epileptic fit and they, oh. she gets sent there and it's not a nice place. That's in A Child Lost, which is book five. And I struggled with that because I couldn't really reveal a lot of the horror horrors that happened there. I kind of skate past them because at the same time, I'm doing this sort of the romantic elements as well. So it's, it is a fine line. Yeah, I'd seen someone, I'd read this article about using comedy in serious situations and sometimes it's needed because if the story gets too heavy or if it's about, if it's going in like a really dark direction, you need something to kind of lighten it up. So comedy that's done correctly can do that. So would you say kind of romance? It's not supposed to be a dark romance. Like we know this is going to be like a nice kind of romance. Do you think that also could kind of help in these kinds of stories that have these darker elements to them? For sure. I really do. And it, you can look at even Shakespeare. He's always got this sort of clown figures that are always sort of lightening the tension. And right. I wanted to do that in the books as well. So not only do I have romance, but there usually is a sort of comic character in each book. And so in the first few books that comes in the character of Stanley, who is this neighborhood boy that thinks that he's in love with Henrietta and he follows her everywhere. And of course, he's very jealous of Clive. And But as his storyline goes along, his turns a little darker as well. So as soon as his started to turn a little darker, I needed to introduce a new comedic character, and that was Elsie, which is the sister's roommate, and she's sort of this bubbly, light character. And as the author, I love to write those characters because they're so easy and fun. And they switch to the scene in the, the insane asylum. So yeah, there's a balance. Yeah. That actually kind of reminds me because from classics that I've seen, especially just because you mentioned that you watched a lot of the old, some, some mysteries and stuff. I don't know if it's exactly what you saw, but if you've seen a lot of classic films or black and white films, they very often have their distinctive comedic character. It's just funny that you mentioned that because it automatically called to mind a lot of films like that that have that character who's just yes. kind of as the comic relief. Right, yeah. It really serves the purpose well. And that also just goes to show that sometimes authors or they sometimes want to add these kinds of characters, but you've got to make sure that they're there for a reason, even if the reason is to just ease the tension but that is a specific reason for the character. Yes. Yeah. And you, I think you have to really be careful in mystery as well because mysteries have to be pretty tight. There's not a lot of room to sort of go off on tangents or to just draw up a, a comedic character, you know, just for the heck of it. They're so tightly paced. You have to keep them moving and every scene has to, every chapter has to have a reason to be and every character has to have a reason to be as well. So, yeah, exactly. Especially for your series, how much historical research did you do and how much of that really kind of makes it into the story versus just gives you a sense, placing yourself in that timetable to write the story? Well, you know what? I think that I just have that kind of brain that's always drawn to the past. I think I've spent my whole life sort of like absorbing these random facts, but especially working in the nursing home, I think it was like three years. I would just sit and talk to the residents, not really doing my job and just talking to them because 
they just had such fascinating stories. And so when I would sit down to write these books, I did do a lot of Chicago neighborhood research when I was writing that first book. And so I kind of used a lot of that and sprinkled it in through this series. But I'm not one of those writers that does a ton of research and then writes the book. I write the book and then whatever I need to fill in, then I go and research it because I find that that's a way to prevent going down these giant rabbit holes of research that last some writers spend months and months and months and months researching. For example, The Insane Asylum. Of course, I did research on that, but I just, I did it after the fact because I didn't want that to get in the way of the story. There was only one time in the series where I did research ahead of time, and sure enough, it really became a stumbling block because I so badly wanted to put all of this detail into the book, and there's just not room for it. So... That's kind of how I go about it. That's really interesting. Because it's like, I know they had a sane asylums, so I could put them there, and that'll just fill in the details afterwards sort of thing. Kind of, yeah. My new book coming out for the series, so book six, is called A Spying Eye. It comes out in October. And that is all about a real-life painting that went missing in 1934 from Belgium. And mm. it was a very famous painting from the 1400s. It has a very long storied past, and Hitler was in search of it for a specific reason. So I... I have decided to put that in the book and have Clive and Henrietta are also looking for it at the same time that the Nazis are. So obviously there's a lot of drama there. I had to do a little bit of research on that ahead of time. I was looking for a famous painting, something from the 30s that got stolen in the 30s. And this is what popped up and it was very fascinating to me. So I did do some reading on that, but I was able to kind of contain it. Maybe I'm just getting better at it. Well, we would hope so. Six books in. (laughs) Yeah, right. Where I can control my research Brain. Yeah, well, because it is. It's a big thing for anyone who wants who has to do any sort of research. That you just, I think a lot of people are either afraid of falling into the rabbit hole, or they just don't even know where to start. It's a good other option of, we know these things exist, so just kind of put them in there and you'll flush them out later. And that way you, your research is very specific instead of exactly. just getting lost. I, yeah, yeah, I feel like you just don't waste time that way. And for me, it really is about the story. It's not trying to take this event that happened and craft a story around it. Mine's the opposite. I want to craft the story and then put in details later. You just said something about you were looking for an art piece that had gone missing. Is that how you've written some of these mysteries? You're like, okay, what is something that a cop would look at? And then let's go because it sounded like you specifically went looking for that story. That's the only one where I specifically went looking for a story because I knew I was taking them back to Europe for book six and I needed to think of what's a mystery that they could be involved in. And I also have to kind of pay attention because Because this series is not like some mystery series where it's just the same stock characters and they just solve a different mystery every time. This is very progressive. They can be read out of order. I don't advise it. But because all of the storylines keep evolving and progressing. So there were certain things that I knew I had to resolve from some of the previous books. Like Henrietta's relatives are somewhere in France. So it's like I have to incorporate a lot of things. And so I'm like, you know what could they be looking for? Maybe some kind of stolen art. How about that? Maybe something to do with the Nazis. I'm like, yeah, how about that? So I kind of started looking like, what's the connection? And I found this. 
So it was great. So I based the story on them looking for this panel. And of course, it was never in Strasbourg, which is where they're going. But the panel to this day has never been recovered. It's still missing. So you're taking a little bit of a leap of fiction and saying, well, maybe at one point it was in Strasbourg because we still don't know where it is now. So who knows? So I guess if it hasn't been disproven, then it's kind of fair game for artistic leeway, I guess you could say. Yes, exactly. That's what I thought anyway. Well, I think the biggest thing is, especially when it comes to historical fiction, is if someone can very definitely prove you wrong, then that's not a good choice for an author. Unless you very specifically are like, this is based on a time period versus no, this is set in that time period. If the painting's still missing, no one could prove you wrong about it. Right. It's a perfect setup because the whole thing is so shrouded in mystery. And I do put a lot about it in the acknowledgments and lots of links. It's just a fascinating story. I could write a whole book just on how this panel was stolen from the St. Bavos Cathedral in Belgium at the time. It's an amazing sort of art theft story. Well, just going back from when you did write the first of the Henrietta books, from writing it to publication, what happened there? How did you get this one published? What kind of path did you take? That's a great question. So let's go back for a second to the book that never got published. I submitted this to like 200 agents. No one took it. And so I'm like, you know, obviously I'm doing something wrong. Either there's something wrong with the product or I'm querying wrong. So I'm like, you know, if you're really going to do this, you're going to have to start going to conferences. You're just going to have to start learning. And so I went to the Writer's Digest Conference in New York and I was really excited to be there. And all this is like the super big newbie. And there just seemed to be a lot of hate going around about traditional publishing. And that was sort of like an eye, the the beginning of the eye opening for me that this is sort of a broken industry. Lots of people were very soured about getting an agent blah, blah, blah. And I had just come off submitting to 200 agents. So I happened to hear at this conference that there's a third way to publish, which I had not known about. So it's like traditional self-publishing. And then in the middle is hybrid publishing. Went home and I started researching hybrid publishers. And one that was one of the ones that was mentioned a lot at the conference was She Writes Press. They're based in Berkeley. And I decided to research them. And for me, they provided a great fit because they have a lot of the advantages of traditional publishing, but then some of the advantages of self-publishing too. So it's kind of ironic that I wrote this mystery for the, the express purpose of getting an agent. That When the time came for me to actually start pitching to an agent, I no longer wanted to get a traditional deal. So I just went right to She Writes Press with it and said, would you take this? I should note here that they do vet. So it's not a vanity press. They take only about 7% of their submissions. Oh, wow. And I actually submitted the first book to them and they said no. So then I gave them this book and they said, yeah, we'll take this. So uh, that's how it happened. Yeah. So I guess you're not looking back. This is the fit for you and, and you're happy with this. I'm going to finish the series with them. So book seven comes out next October and oh. that will end the series. Don't tell my fans. They don't know yet. Surprise. Yeah. I'm going to end the series. And in the meantime, while I've been writing the series, I've written two other historical fiction novels, which I am now trying to pitch to agents to get a traditional publisher. So I'm kind of trying to dip my toe in all the fields, really. Yeah. So I'm obviously a very established hybrid author, but I'd like to see what traditional publishing is like. And at the same time, I kind of have some ideas for a self-published series. So I'd like to kind of try them all out and see which is best. Yeah. And it seems like a lot of authors are doing that. Even if they are traditionally published, some will go to self-publishing if they just feel like this project in particular, I want it to be self-published or with a hybrid press. I guess that's also the good thing of having different options is that sometimes you feel like it needs a different fit, you know, whatever the project needs. 
Brooke Warner, who's the publisher of She Arts Press, she has said that many times. It kind of depends on where you are. A certain book is ready to go, or, and it also depends on the book itself. Different types of publishing sort of lend itself to what you need at that particular moment. And I really think that that's true. Yeah. Hybrid publishing probably also lets you kind of cut your teeth a little bit in publishing and writing and all that, etc. So when you do get that traditional deal, you can be a little bit more prepared for what happens next, even though it will be different. A hundred percent. Yeah. And that's one of the goals of Brooke is that when her authors go through the Shearer's press process, she's really pulling all the curtains back. So it's very transparent. And one of her goals is that when you go on, if you go on to something else, you'll go out with your eyes wide open. And I have definitely found that. I've been at book events with traditionally published authors who might be like B or C list or whatever, because I think A list authors, that they have a different reality. <laughs> but yeah. like the B list authors, I'll ask them certain things about their process or their marketing or whatever. And they just sort of look at me with glazed eyes. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm like, wow. Mm. So yeah, I do think it's an advantage to have kind of gone through this process and sort of learned the ropes. And now I feel like I'm making a more educated decision going forward. Yeah, that's great. When you did go to them, you already knew this is my book. I want it to be a series. And they were like, sure, we'll take it. And we'll take your series. You have to submit each book to them. But mm -hmm. they like to take authors back. So it's not like you get to jump in front at the, to the head of the line, but at the same time, they strongly encourage it. Yeah, well, once you have a working relationship with them, it kind of makes sense if it's a good fit to stay there. Yeah. Do they provide the editor for you also? And they're like, hey, this editor is going to be the one working with you on it? Or you had to kind of find that for yourself? Well, they do have light editing. First of all, they read your book and they decide if it's, they have different tracks. Track A is ready to go. Track B needs editing. Track C, you really need to go kind of go back to the starting point and get like a developmental editor or something like that. So I came in on track A, but they're like, you know, we really just want the books to be the best that they can be. So we highly advise you to just have a really deep copy edit. They split the class with me. But then by the time I got to like books four, five, and six, I decided that I wanted my edit to be quite a bit heavier. And so I hired my own editor and then it went through their proofers. So it was kind of a, you know, hand in hand. Yeah. I think a lot of people also don't realize that there's different levels of editing, like a line <laughs> editing or a concept editor. Like you could end up working with either a different group of editors or your editor might only specialize in one thing. And you have to know if that's what you're looking for from the editors. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And when I started out, I had no idea what they were even talking about. I'm like, okay. Now I totally get the differences. Yeah. It's great to have the opportunity of getting, well, I guess you could say of, of cutting your teeth a little bit. Now, you know, you've got now a library now that you're going out there with. You have a bunch of books out there. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I just want to ask one more thing before we do our wrap up. Just is any part of writing historical fiction, and this is something that I think probably varies according to the writer. Mm -hmm. Are there certain things of the past that because they're different now, do you kind of have to stop yourself from the way either what societal standards are or what's kind of accepted norms? It was different then. This insane asylum might be a good example. That it used to be back in the day, not that long ago, that if someone was in a insane asylum or there was something going on, like no one spoke about it. It was such a taboo. You don't talk about these things in a polite society if someone has <laughs> an issue. And today people speak about it much more. There's much more support groups for that. People in general support each other much more. Of Let's help you through whatever you're going through. And so were there times, it doesn't have to be that specific, but were there things like that that you're like, well, I didn't really like the way that happened then, but I'm going to have to stick with what history was or because I'm still writing fiction, I could kind of tweak it a little bit. 
It's a good question. No, I feel like I'm pretty good just because of my reading background and because I'm a big period drama junkie. I kind of understand what the norms were and what was accepted and what wasn't. I especially have a lot of women's issues in my books where that just wasn't. So that's not hard for me to sort of, because I feel like your characters have to be believable. They all can't be Wonder Woman or, you know, (laughs) this is not really a historical fiction novel. But I do think that the only time that I sort of push that sort of believability is with Henrietta herself because she's very spunky character. She really gives Clive a run for his money. And so she she really wants to help him with his detective work. And he's very old school and he, of course, in love with her, but he really doesn't like this idea. That's a constant sort of tension between them through the whole series. But I felt like it was realistic because I had actually met the woman that I based her on. And her stories, she would have these waitress jobs in the Depression when there were lines miles long for jobs. And these owners or managers would get her in the corner and try to like feel her up or whatever. And she would just not put up with it. So she would slap them and she'd be out on the street. Knowing that she was going to get fired, there's a line of people looking for jobs. I just think that that took incredible courage. And so I felt like, you know what? I think that making Henrietta this sort of kind of independent woman that's still trying to operate in the confines of society, I think it's believable. So she sort of pushes it for me. Right. And I guess that also kind of creates its own challenges of if I want to do this, but I have to stay within historical fact. So how do I get around it? Or like, how do I work with it and keep it true and believable? Right. Did you ever tell the woman that who this is kind of based off of? Did you ever get a chance to tell her or show her the book of like, you inspired this character? (laughs) No, I wish. I'm sure she's passed on by now. That oh. was like 30 years ago. Yeah. yeah and I, <laughs> so unfortunately, she doesn't know that there's a book based on her. That's not a great note to wrap up on, but we're going to wrap up anyways. <laughs> well, anyway, so we do always wrap up with this sort of fill in the blank of, I really like it when writers, editors, agents, publishers, stories, covers, whatever, anything story related, bookstores, librarians, choosing one, I really like it when X, and I really don't like it when choosing one X. So how would you fill in the blank for that? I really like stories that have dual timelines. I'm a huge sucker for that. I love dual timelines. And especially I love dual timelines that aren't present day versus a timeline in the past. I love like two historical timelines, like something from the 1850s and then a timeline that's going on in the 20s. I love books like that. Are there books like I always see modern day and past ones. I guess there has to be some book. Kate Morton does a great job. A lot of times she has three. Oh, wow. So there's usually a distant past, a recent past, and a present day timeline. Uh-huh. So she wrote The Forgotten Garden, The House at Riverton, and all of those. So she's an expert, I think. Okay. And then how would you do for I really don't like it when? Okay. I guess I would say I don't like it when publishers only place their bets on known authors. I don't like it when they don't take chances on new authors. Yeah, that's the business side of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they're looking for the blockbuster. Right, and they're hoping they that that's going to keep everything else so afloat. Much, uh, yeah. There's so much out there that they're missing. That's true. So. That's, I guess, also where kind of the smaller presses, even though sometimes in a way they're so small that the marketing for it has to be ginormous, which they don't mm-hmm. often have the budget for, or the author doesn't have the budget, budget for, but your smaller presses, your hybrid presses do sometimes get those books out. They do. And that's why libraries and indie bookstores really sort of champion those authors more than the big box stores. At least we have them to sort of 
give us a little bit of visibility, which is awesome. Absolutely. Michelle, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. It's been fun speaking with you. Yeah, thanks a lot. This was great. I had a lot of fun. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Work podcast featuring author Michelle Cox. To find out more about Michelle and her work, please visit the link in the episode notes. To find out more about Oh My Work podcast and to see all the great stuff we're up to, check us out on Instagram at Oh My Work podcast or at eltenenbaum.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thank you so much for joining us. Catch you next time.